I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about the third and final installment of our What the Fluid series. We're going to talk about sepsis, and we're going to talk about septic shock. Yeah, so the definitions of septic shock um, have changed um, over the last couple of years. And, Mm -hmm. you know, septic shock is unique. Uh, When we talk about cardiogenic shock and, and hemorrhagic shock, I think really they're they're fairly easy. You know, you get somebody with chest pain, you get somebody you know diagnosed with a STEMI, and they're hypotense, hypotensive or showing poor perfusion. They're obviously in cardiogenic shock. Yeah. There's not a lot of differences there. Mm. Yeah, and I don't know if it was the same for you, but for me as a paramedic student, and even as an early paramedic, man, sepsis was pretty intimidating because. There's just so much to the immune system. Oh, yeah. And and then just even identifying it. You know, you have to know pathophysiology. There's just no way in septic shock. You know, you can you can run down an algorithm of, uh, you know, mechanism of action. Uh, the patient was in, uh, you know, was in a car wreck. They were shot. They were stabbed. They're hypotensive. You can arrive at hemorrhagic shock pretty right. easy, just like you can cardiogenic shock. But sepsis is completely different. You have to have a really high index of suspicion. You have to understand patient population. You have to understand, again, pathophysiology, what's actually going on, um, because we want to catch this patient while they're septic, mm. even before they go into septic shock. So Absolutely. Then we have to, this is much more encompassing um, than other forms of shock. Yeah. And and learning the patho behind this is pretty intimidating as well, because, man, the immunology is just a beast. There is so much whenever you get into the innate immune system versus the adaptive immune system that that's that's not something and I think we've talked about this before but memorization it's it's a you're trying to learn processes whenever we talk about that yeah just imagine when you're in you're in school and you're going through med emergencies and you're you're just like oh now we're going to be in immunology and it's just more things you have to memorize before you can really even understand them. So for things like this, um, you know, I think it helps to have a personal connection. And I know for you, uh, you have a very deep personal connection for why you learned immunology the way you did. Yeah. And that's uh, for for those who don't know, my uh, my wife, about a year and a half ago, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And during that moment, you know, with with it was with all the fear, with all the anxiety, I couldn't protect her from this. You know, this isn't something that I can stop. This isn't something that I can help in any way. So I think part of my defense mechanism was, hey, I'm going to learn everything about this that I possibly can. And the terrifying thing is, I think in emergency medicine, we know very little about sepsis. Um, And through my studying of this, um, I learned that, man, we're just we're barely scratching the surface. Uh, But I wanted to know as much as I possibly could, because now that my wife is one of those at risk patients, and I think that's one of the things that you talked about that we should gain out of this episode is that patient population, you know, identify which patients are high risk. So since my wife became one of those, I said, all right, I I want to learn as much about this as I can so I can prevent as much as possible her being one of these septic shock So patients. take us through some of that, um, just the, the <clears throat> pathophysiology of what is actually happening when there's an infection, mm. how does it tur- turn to sepsis, how does it turn to septic shock? Sure. So, I mean, it all starts with the, with the introduction of a foreign 
substance, a foreign pathogen. And that can happen in several different ways. And again, you have your, your innate immune system, your nonspecific immunity, um, which we have mechanical barriers for that. We have the skin. We have and this the, is the one everybody has. Yeah, absolutely. This isn't, this doesn't matter what you've been exposed to. <clears throat> this is something, these are the mechanical barriers that are meant to prevent foreign invaders from getting into our skin. You have different acids on your skin. You have mucous membranes. You have cilia and hair. If anything makes it past those, like, for example, if you were to breathe in a some type of microorganism that can be harmful, it makes it past all the hairs in your respiratory tract. It makes it down to the alveoli and it gets into your bloodstream. Or if you have trauma, if, if somebody cuts your arm or if you cut your finger on something and you get a foreign pathogen within your bloodstream, at that point, that is where, you know, you have, let, let's say it's bacteria. So now you have a foreign pathogen that's not part of you. So we have the non the non-specific response that says, "All right, I'm going to flood this area with inflammation." I'm going to because like we've talked about before, the difference between localized versus systemic. So in the situation where it's localized, you have a cut on the finger, pretty pretty bad cut on the hand with a dirty knife, we'll say. You have histamine, you have inflammation, you have things that are targeting that local area and saying, all right, we have, we don't know what this is. We, we know that this is, that there was a break in the skin. So we're going to flood this area with, with, with things to take care of it and try to heal it. So if it makes it past that, that's when the problem occurs. So take us, take us through that. How does this inflammation, how does vasodilation, mm. how does the body's response to this vaso, vasodilation either help <laughs> or continue that? Sure, absolutely. So if let's say that that localized response does not kill the pathogen, and we'll just use a bacteria as, um, as an example. So you have within bacterial infections, you have exotoxins. Those are just chemicals that, that are released by the bacteria as it grows. Those chemicals cause vasodilation. And so the bummer about it is that whenever our body says, hey, that's, uh, that's, that's not part of me, you need to kill it because it's floating around in the bloodstream. It's causing vasodilation. Um, so kill it. So whenever our, whenever our immune system kills that bacteria, it's going to release an endotoxin. Well, it's going to cause vasodilation too. So, so as our body is attacking the foreign pathogens, it's actually causing more harm to itself by the vasodilation. And also, not only the vasodilation, but you can actually have direct damage from those chemicals. You can have direct damage to the cells and to the tissues from those exotoxins and endotoxins. So... As oh sorry, go ahead. You know, and then so that then as that continues to happen, you know, it's obviously happening in the larger vessels as it moves down into the tissue. Mm. What's actually happening there at the capillary level? Yeah. So so as the as the larger blood vessels, as the larger veins dilate, it moves on down the line, like you said, to the capillaries. Well, the problem with that is that we have capillaries everywhere <laughs> that we have critical organs. So whenever those whenever capillaries dilate, capillaries are constructed in a way that they are what's called intercalated. So they, they are discs that are stacked on top of each other. When they dilate, it separates. And so whenever those capillaries separate, they're, they're releasing intravascular fluid 
into the interstitial mm. spaces. And so the problem with that is that that fluid is no longer taking part in perfusion. It is no longer assisting in keeping a blood pressure up. So another issue with that is you're losing substances such as albumin and plasma proteins that also assist in keeping that pressure going. And the issue with that as well is whenever you have the edema that results from that, you have the fluid in the interstitial spaces that is preventing oxygen from getting to the cells now. The whole problem with that is whenever you have oxygen not getting to the cells, then it's going to be operating under anaerobic metabolism. So those glucose molecules that are supposed to be going under glycolysis, well, they, they are. They're going under glycolysis, but they're not able to participate in ATP production anymore. So what happens is that it turns into pyruvate. And then it turns into pyruvic acid, which is lactic acid. And then as the sodium-potassium pump shuts down, well, we no longer have that exchange of, of, of fluid. So the cells grow, grow, grow. They rupture. And then you have lactic acid everywhere, which leads to a lactate levels. Right, which is by by definition shock. So these this is certainly something that happens in our body. You know, these pathogens enter our body all the time. We you know we breathe them in. We get cuts. We get um, they enter into our body at some in some way. Our immune system usually takes care of it. Not a problem. It's localized. We never even know that it that it's happened. So um, when it becomes systemic, mm. then obviously you know we we have miles and miles of of capillary beds, and we have more area in our interstitial space than we even do in our in our vessels. Absolutely. Um, and so we've labeled this systemic inflammation, inflammatory response syndrome, or or SIRS. Why why has that been? Um, not the best definition. And what have we done in the last couple of years um, about SIRS? So the thing that I believe we found in emergency medicine is that as we are trying to chase down a definition of sepsis, you can't, these patients are not so cookie cutter like we thought we were, mm. that they were. And that's why I'm saying that I think we barely scratched the surface. In SIRS or systemic inflammatory response syndrome, you have criteria to try to fit these patients into a model, so mm. to speak. So you have tachycardia and, and all these, all these parameters are at rest. So, and that's the important thing in your patient assessment. So with SIRS, you had a patient with a heart rate above 100. You had an increased respiratory rate. You also had the presence of a fever or of a low body temperature. And you also had a white blood cell count. This doesn't necessarily correlate with pre-hospital, but you had a white blood cell count that was either elevated or decreased. So if you had a white count of 50,000 in the emergency department, then, okay, well, we have suspicion. We have an index of suspicion that this patient is fighting an infection. Or if you have a decreased blood cell, white blood cell count. So let's say you have a white count of 3,000. They pull a CBC, a complete blood count, and... and and um, you're looking at all of the immune markers. So if you have an incre you have a decreased white count and a band shift, and you have increased neutrophils. Well, what that is sign signaling is that okay, look, we're losing the fight. We, we were sending these white blood cells to boot camp, so to speak. They were becoming specific types of 
blood cells, for example, they were becoming phagocytic cells that can consume or dendritic cells that can consume um, these pathogens. But now they're not. We're losing the war. So now we're just sending the recruits straight to war. They're not going to boot camp anymore. We're taking neutrophils and we're sending them straight to war. So that to say, what we found was that that's not always accurate. It's not always accurate that you have a fever. Mm. It's not always accurate that you have a low body temperature. So with that, I think it was, it, it was, it was good that we looked at it and said, okay, let's try to be more accurate about this. Um, let's create criteria to where we can look at this, the body, the body's systems as a whole and say, all right, we do have a suspicion for sepsis at this point. Okay. So sirs, no longer, no Sir, longer really a thing since, since 2016 published in JAMA. We can yep. throw that online there. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so now we're just, I mean, now we're, we're just focusing on sepsis right. and septic shock. And I think right. we said this, but they're, they're two very, not very different things, but we need to classify them differently. Right. Uh, and I think that was a different the problem with, with SIRS is we were waiting till the shock. We were waiting till mm. they progressed so long till they had a fever. Yeah. We were saying, oh, you know, it looks like they're sick, but they don't have a fever yet. So they can't be in this group. And right. um, maybe that caused us to not treat them as aggressively. So um, another one of the benefits of uh, coming out with this new definition is new screening techniques, uh, especially in the in emergency medicine and pre-hospital. So take us through some of those uh, diagnostic exams. Sure, sure. So like you said, and like we've tried to talk about before and trying to have a paradigm shift of of how we treat our patients. So let's say you, you run a patient and they have altered mentation. Automatically, you know, something's wrong. You either know that there is some type of chemical imbalance, some type of hormonal imbalance, or the brain is not being perfused. So that's one of the biggest things that is, that has changed. So now we have criteria that they call SOFA criteria that is used in the hospital. SOFA stands for the sequential or sepsis related organ failure assessment. And in brief, what it is, it's a scale from zero to four that measures the function of the respiratory system, the, the cardiovascular system, the hepatic system, the renal system, as well as coagulation factors. So the cool thing about it is that we've simplified it for EMS. For, for pre-hospital providers, we have something called the Q-SOFA or quick SOFA. So it's Brandon proof, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> um, so if you have a respiratory rate greater than 22, a systolic blood pressure less than 100, and a GCS of 13 or less, if you have greater than one, if, if each of those things, each of those parameters are one point. So if you have greater than one point, then this patient is a candidate to be, or is a candidate for septic shock. Yeah. And the other way that I've, I've heard it, um, uh, explained is, and, and it's essentially the same thing with they call it BAT. So B-A-T. Mm -hmm. So, um, blood pressure less than a hundred, as you said, alter mental status instead of, to me, worrying more about, uh, you know, trying to count all the way to 13, Absolutely. which can be difficult. So yeah. any alter mental status and any tachypnea, which is, uh, anything over 22 breaths a minute. And if you have two out of three of those, then we have to have a really high index of suspicion, but there's a lot of patients that mm. have that. Right. So, um, if we look at really the three 
groups of patients where we should have a just a super high index of suspicion mm. are the very young, the very old, and the very frail. Mm. And those are the three, um, you know, so if you're, you know, as a as an infant, the infants get this because they can't clear their airway, they can't, um, you know, they can't tell us that certain things uh, are wrong and, and things progress without us uh, catching it. The older uh, population, their immune system just isn't as strong. And then, of course, the frail, um, just like with your wife, you know, people on a chemotherapy, they're mm. immunocompromised. Um, when w- these patients are, you know, tachypnic and they're, they have no reason to be. Absolutely. Man, we should just be absolutely raising these red flags. Sure. Um, but in the past, we've said, oh, well, they're normothermic. So they can't possibly be septic because they don't have a fever. Now, right. you know, we know the fever is just a response to this. And, you know, we know that people with, you know, fever is not a bad thing. Fever, people that have fevers actually do better mm. um, in septic shock than those, than those that don't. But it should give us a high index of suspicion. Yeah. Can we say uh, clearly? Well, no, not, not until we get labs and we get cultures and, and stuff like that. But, but we can have a high index of suspicion. Um, and even if they're, you know, their blood pressure is normal. You have a heart rate that's 130 at mm. rest. That is not normal. All that means is they're now compensating for a blood pre- for a normal blood pressure. If we're waiting for that blood pressure to change, um, you know, we're going to be behind the eight ball. Absolutely. And and that brings to the point something that you've talked about in previous episodes, specifically where we have talked about shock. It's all about the assessment. You know, the, the old adage, treat your patient, not yeah. your monitor. Well, put your money where your mouth is yeah. and do it. <laughs> yeah. um, altered mental status is everything. Man, I think, and I think Dr. Creel hit that so well oh, yeah. that, you know, if they're, if they look fine and they're, they're mentating, well, don't be so concerned. But if their blood pressure seems normal, they have an altered mental status, be very concerned. Absolutely. Um, and then especially, and now, especially with sepsis, we have to sure. really make sure that we're going to do what's right for this patient. Yeah. And man, one of the mic drop moments just came out of your mouth when you said these parameters at rest. So the patient is sitting there with a blood pressure less than 100. Yeah. They're tachycardic. They're tachypnic. They're altered. If they're sitting there and there's no reason there's there no no obvious reason for those things to be occurring. That's when you should definitely be using sepsis as a as a differential diagnosis. Yeah. So, um, and, and one thing that I think is valuable is a valuable piece of information for where this paradigm shift came from recently in emergency medicine is the fact that. Uh, that through studies, through different studies like the Arise trial or like Promise, um, it's it's our marker of success, and that's those are that's one thing that we've talked about before. Is we have certain trials that are retrospective. So, I, and again, I think we're we're very we're scratching the surface of what we know about sepsis and we know about um, sepsis criteria because so many of the studies have been, have been retrospective studies. They haven't really been, uh, prospective studies, double blinded. You know, we haven't had very strict parameters on these. So, and we're also, a lot of the studies will look at mortality versus 
how do we get this patient out of septic shock? Right. And, and, and that's a great point because even retrospective study is almost a contradiction in terms. A retrospective is almost almost always observational. And there are just so many biases there and so many, you know, there's there's just not a lot of, of things that are necessarily in common. For instance, it's going to be provider specific. It's going to be oh, yeah. how, how often do you see sepsis? How good, how sensitive are you? Um, what's your sensitivity with being able to diagnose? diagnose um, mm. sepsis. So, you know, one one of the problems also that we have in our definitions are we talk about sepsis, septic shock are what a map less than uh, 65. Absolutely. Um, you yeah. know, lactate of two. Well, you know what? In the field, we don't get lactates. Now we've right. we've um, we've toyed uh, with the idea. We've done. I personally have done some research to try to figure out could we get lactic uh, lactate monitoring in the field. What mm. I found is most of the lactate monitors out there right now are really for athletics. Um, they're not medical grade. Mm. They're really to see how hard athletes are working and, and how often they recover. They are working on some medical grade stuff in the UK, but I think that's probably a little ways away. They do have point of care testing mm. or what we call ISTAT, but yeah. they're very expensive. Um, and quite honestly, I don't think we need them. I don't think if, if it's almost like using a pulse ox mm-hmm. to diagnose hypoxia, Yeah, you know, if you need a number readout on a on a piece of machinery because you can't have a high index of suspicion that a patient's hypoxic, then and you know maybe we need to be finding something else for you. We we don't need that absolute um, for whether or not a patient is in septic shock. Yeah, well, and like Kyle Gibson said in the hemorrhagic shock episode, it's the art of a patient assessment. Yeah. Because it truly is an art. And that individual patient assessment. Correct. Yes. Yeah. You can't paint with a broad brush, especially in sepsis. Everybody is different. And again, those three patient populations that you just laid out for us, they're going to all respond differently, completely differently, Um, especially in their compensation. Right. So take us through some of the, you know, what, what some of the studies, you know, we've, we've probably, um, exhausted the soap one and soap two, which was actually designed, you know, we, we use it for all, you know, many forms of shock, but it's actually designed for septic shock mm. on epinephrine. I'm sorry, dope, um, dopamine versus norepinephrine. Mm. Um, but take us through some of the treatment, you know, we talked about up front that, um, you know, with cardiogenic shock and, and hemorrhagic shock, maybe we want to limit or eliminate mm. fluids in a septic point. shock. It's it's not that easy. In fact, um, we probably do need fluids. Yeah. But what's the timing of that and the amount? Um, what does that look like? Absolutely. So in in previous studies, uh, the school of thought. Whenever I went through paramedic school, and I'm sure it was it was similar when you went through. In fact, I'd like to know. I'd like to know whenever I went through paramedic school, the treatment was, all right, well, we're going to get 40 milliliters per kilogram bolus of of normal saline fluid, of some type of crystalloid fluids. What mm-hmm. was it when you went through paramedic school? Um, I'm pretty sure when I went through paramedic school, if you said, what is septic shock? I think that mean um, uh, when you flush your toilet, <laughs> you get shocked. <laughs> or the bill after you get the tank pumped. Yeah, there yeah. you go. That would be septic shock. Um I'm confident we didn't know what septic shock was way back in the 1900s. <laughs> so, you know, I can't speak to that. In fact, even, you know, the whole um, fluid bolus thing, you know, we didn't really have uh, 
20 milliliters <clears throat> per kilogram mm. standards. Uh, we pretty much had, in any form of shock, um, give fluids until you don't have any more. Wow. Um, and, and honestly, a lot of it was... As long as they don't have pulmonary edema, they can take more, they can get more fluids. Oh, goodness gracious. Wow. Yeah. So there you well, go. So with that to say, I think that um, one of the big paradigm shifts was that, okay, we've, we've realized that when we look at the three problems, vessel, volume, or pump, this one's a vessel problem. All right. So let's fill the vessel. Let's fill it with fluid. And so the initial thought process was how much fluid can we get them over six hours? And man, there, there were studies citing that we were giving, we were administering 14 liters of fluid over six hour time periods. And while yes, that is certainly filling the vessel, it really is. And I'm sure that the map was coming up. All that vasodilation that we were just talking about leading to the capillary permeability. So we were talking about where do we have capillaries? Well, any critical organ within the body is super saturated with capillaries. So the lungs, for example, if the capillaries are permeable because they are in septic shock and you dump 14 liters of fluid into them, man, you can cause, you can cause ARDS. Oh yeah. You're filling up that uh, interstitial space. Absolutely. And it's, it's just going, it's just going right out. You know, there's, there, there are some novel things that some people have tried, um, passive leg raise. Mm. Um, you know, we do this in kids when we're having, uh, issues with starting IVs and stuff, we can move fluid back up by, you know, just, um, raising their legs. Yeah. And that might work, but really what you have to do with passive leg raise, you raise the legs, move fluid up, but you really have to be able to measure CVP. Yeah. And we just don't have that ability in the field. Right. So we do have to be careful that we can not only cause more problems as we have more leaky capillaries or permeability, we can send more fluid over there or we can overshoot it. That maybe they're at the beginning stages and we mm. go to dump two or three liters of fluid in them in, you know, 30, 45 minutes right? Um, or even an hour, we can overshoot that and cause more harm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's that's a critical piece of it that I think that a lot of these uh, these masters of emergency medicine started to realize. They, they said, hey, you know what? We have critical organs that, again, saturated with capillaries. Now we're dumping a ton of fluid into these organs. Look at the liver, the lungs, the, the renal system. I mean, if those capillaries have opened up and now you're flooding them and it's overloaded, then critical organ failure, maybe we are contributing to mm -hmm. it. So one of the schools of thought that has recently changed is, first off, we've identified that, yes, we need to get them fluids. We need to get them fluids rapidly. So again, like you identified at the beginning of the episode, it's not that we're saying take fluids away from sepsis. That's not what we're talking right. about. 30 milliliters per kilogram on average for most studies that have been performed in emergency medicine has proven to be adequate to get the map at least close to 65 if we can get the map close to 65, then we're doing well. There was one study in Australia to where they they found that uh, to limit fluid administration during sepsis to 15 or 20 mLs per kg, but there were a lot of uh, a lot of things wrong with that study that that kind of discredited its validity. But one study that was done recently in Thailand called the Sensor Trial. So it's it. It investigated 
the early use of norepinephrine in septic shock along with fluid administration. Mm. So the cool thing that came out of this study was that we had, if you have septic shock, again, like you said, differentiating shock from sepsis. If, if you had a patient who was truly in septic shock, you initiate that 30 ml per kg bolus with pressors, You're, excuse me, with, with a pressure infuser. You are trying to get that fluid in quickly. The goal that I've, that I've found in common is around two liters per hour. You, you want to get two liters in one hour. Um, and so with that to say, initiate small, low-dose norepinephrine early with fluid administration. And in fact, they were able to get patients out of shock, out of septic shock within six hours, within less than six hours. And uh, that was a, there, there was a huge confidence interval that was showing markers of success. I believe it was above 70%. 70% of the patients within this trial were able to get without of sh- outside of shock symptoms within six hours. And, and how were they measuring that? Just a decrease in lactate? So a decrease in lactate from above two down to below two. They sustained a map of 65 or higher, greater than 15 minutes without, without any type of interventions. Um, and, uh, alter the altermentation was decreased. The patients became more, less lethargic. They, they had a higher GCS at that point. Yeah. So, so in any of these studies, do they have the recommendation of just opening these fluids wide open or are these give fluid boluses of, you know, 500 or so and reassessing, mm. or is this just a dump two liters in them right away and uh, see how that does. You know, for, for what I've read, it's, it is get the fluid in as fast as you can. Pressure infuser. Um, two liters of fluid within an hour is, is the goal for most of these. So that is, uh, that's kind of a, it's a little different than what we've been talking yeah. about with cardiogenic shock yeah. from hemorrhagic yeah. shock. And again, that's the importance of knowing your patho. No, I mean, yeah, all day long. And I'd encourage people, of course, we got to follow, um, you know, local protocols and yes. we're going to have some that are, that are more aggressive, some are less than aggressive mm. and some are ignorant. So, you know, you know, we got to kind of, unfortunately we, well, not unfortunately, but, um, you know, we do have to go with what the protocol is, but we should be able to challenge it. Absolutely. We should be able to say, Hey, this is what our protocol is. Let's go, let's go look at some stuff. Cause I think, you know, as uh, as you look across trials, there's some meta analysis that you know some some say give fluids so you know two liters some you know twenty milliliters per kilogram some mm. thirty milliliters per kilogram you know you like you said there were right. some forty but the problem is if you were forty five years ago and you haven't looked at that and some of the data since then you may right. still be giving forty right. per kilogram and you know I think that we could be we could be harming them but this is another reason I think EMS needs to be working closely with hospitals and yes. hospitals with EMS so that we could see are these protocols appropriate are they coming in and this is working or are they coming in and now we're having to give a bunch of diuretics to get this fluid off mm. um, that uh, you know may have been inappropriate and so we've got to be able to share that information so. So yeah, I think I think you're right that um, especially in sensor that it's a combination of fluids and pressors. Absolutely, because the pressors are going to take those capillaries and they're going. It's going to constrict those capillaries. Bingo. And you've not solved the problem, but you solved what you would what we consider your outflow problem. Yeah. 
So to actually solve the problem, what has to happen? So at that point, like you like you said earlier, we have to attack the specific pathogen. So if this if if the pathogen is a bacteria, then at that point, like you said, um, several protocols within emergency departments throughout the country country vary, but for the most part, if if they start off with broad spectrum antibiotics, pull cultures, and then from that point, they can fine tune it. That's the definitive, you know, you're, you're trying to kill the pathogen um, that is causing the issue. And that that's the, you know, that's the neat thing about pre-hospital is that we're trying to get them out of shock. And that's, you know, if you, if you look at a lot of different literature, they can call it doses of shock, which I really like. I, I like the fact that they're calling um, that they're looking at shock as a disease process. And if if our goal within the 30 minutes to an hour and I'm, I mean, gosh, I know that can vary from, you know, from the listeners and viewers. But if if we can get the patient's on the road to getting out of septic shock to get them to get those shock symptoms away to where they can receive definitive treatment of antibiotic therapy, then I really do believe that we can have a great, we can make some good strides towards better patient outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's what happens in the ER. They'll give a broad spectrum. They'll pull some cultures. They'll try to get more specific on what type of pathogen it is um, to attack that. So you know, one um, fairly recent trial showed that if they got the antibiotic with, with, within one hour, it was an 8% reduction in mortality. Mm. So that begs the question, especially in some maybe of some of the rural areas, should antibiotics be given by EMS? So, yeah, I, I think that that's, uh, that that's definitely something that we could look into. And in fact, a a service within our region, as long as the patient has met certain criteria and as long as medical direction confers, then they onload rocephin. They, you know, they get a wide spectrum antibiotic going and the thought process is, well, since that is a longer transport time, you onload the fluids, you administer you know, 30 mLs per kg of fluids rapidly trying to get the, those fluids into the patient, administer broad spectrum antibiotics into the patient in order to start that definitive care, then like you said, we're giving them as the, the best chance that we can potentially give them for survival from an EMS perspective. Yeah. And I don't think it's necessarily even long transport time because, you know, that hour is not from the time you pick them up. You know, I think there, we have this problem with data that, you know, in, you know, in cardiology, we do door to balloon or we do, um, you know, we do this 10 minute thing or this one hour thing. Well, it's always from the time we arrive. And I think we forget the fact that, you know, that patient was sick before we got there. Absolutely. So look at, you know, look at all these patients, you know, you, you get an elderly person that lives at home and they've got pneumonia and all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but they became septic and no one's gone to check on them for two hours. They show up. Now the patient's unconscious. They've got a fever, you know, 103. Well, you know, they probably need an antibiotic soon, right. not, oh, well, we have an hour to get yeah. it in. Well, they probably needed an hour ago, but like you pointed out, most of the trials in sepsis have been retrospective. And that's just not good enough. Retrospective is not usually a good time to make practice changes. There actually was one prospective um, randomized trial for pre-hospital um, antibiotic. It, it was called Fantasy, um, pH Fantasy, like mm. 
fat ph not f <laughs> but you ph fat that's right um fantasy so fat. ph fantasy with an i um the problem and it actually showed no benefit mm. but if you just state it that way yeah we shouldn't be given antibiotics if you look at the study it was a very poor study done there were actually 3000 patients but they were way over triage there was only 100 of those patients i think it may a little less than th- right at 3000 maybe a little above only a hundred patients would have met the criteria for septic shock. Mm. And it wasn't even equally distributed. I think it was 30 something and 60 something patients um, in each arm. Um, and there was no mortality benefit. Oh, wow. um, so if you just look at that, uh, it doesn't look great for pre-hospital, but it was also done in, in um, one area in Holland. Um, so I think something like that needs, I think we owe it to our patients. Um, especially in underserved areas, you know, most, you know, a lot of the studies and everything come out of large urban areas. That's just not fair. Most, you know, not, not everyone lives in a large urban area that has access, um, to a hospital or a specific hospital with specific therapies. Um, and I really think EMS can be pushed more to the forefront of delivering these types of therapies. Yeah. And I think this needs to be studied a whole lot more. Yeah. And, and sepsis is not the only opportunity for that as, as you and your team, you know, with the, with the STEMI system, blood, blood therapy or blood product therapy. So many opportunities for this in the future. And and I think as we, as we try to cultivate a culture of looking at evidence-based practice, then we're, we're going to discover those opportunities. Yeah. In fact, I would love to see us, you know, I think we're, we're, the U.S. is somewhat behind the rest of the world when it comes to, to certain things. In fact, in the UK, they have a thing called the sepsis trust, which is really a, an organized type care for sepsis. And it really is a great thing that has brought in EMS. I think they even call it like the College of Paramedics, which mm. that's awesome, um, has brought them in with the hospitals in a whole system on how do we treat septic um, septic shock. And they have this whole thing called septic six um, for identifying and um, and treating septic shock. So that might be something that people would want to look up. And Absolutely. Um, I think it's a good model. Um, I'd like to see that adopted, you know, p- perhaps not across the country. Maybe that's not feasible, but I think in local communities, we can really take this on. And, um, and I think there's got to be a lot more discussion on this. And it has to be more discussion um, with EMS and the ER, but definitive care and critical care. You know, these patients, don't necessarily live or die in the first couple in the first couple hours. Right, these patients can can go on for uh, several days, and if they can't get behind, if we get to a certain point, we just can't take care of this infection. The patient's not going to live. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, good. Well, I think that's a good place to uh, to kind of bring this to a close. And I think if if anything that we could gain out of this discussion is that, man, we have barely scratched the surface. And I think there is a lot of opportunity for not only emergency medicine, but pre-hospital medicine um, to be able to make a bigger impact with sepsis. Definitely. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.